Welcome to On the Road to No Place Left. This is Feeney, and I'm driving as we learn to share the gospel, make disciples, and reproduce leaders and churches until there is no place left where the name of Jesus hasn't been heard. What does the Bible mean when it says all nations? The answer to that question is extremely important as we think about the Great Commission task. Matthew Hurt, in his book Peoples and Places, makes a great argument for defining that term biblically. Let's jump in and hear more about Matthew and his book. Yeah, I grew up on a small farm in Northwest Ohio and uh, family went to church, um, but it did not really uh, sink in with me. Uh, by the time I was 15 years old, I wanted nothing to do with the church. By the time I was in college, I was a committed atheist mm-hmm. and I was really antagonistic to Christians at all. Mm. Uh, I began my freshman year, I was a philosophy student and I began kind of this deep dive into what is truth. Uh, all of my philosophy or all of my philosophy professors were uh, postmodern in their thinking. And even as a 18 year old uh, freshman philosophy student, I struggled to reconcile this concept of subjective truth with the world that I lived in. And so I began exploring truth. What is truth? Is, mm-hmm. you know, can we know truth? If we can know it, how do we know it? All of these deep questions that I was frankly completely unqualified to answer at the time, but I was asking them. Uh, and in my symbolic logic class, I met a guy named Luke. Luke was a Christian and he was interesting to me because I didn't have a category for intelligent Christians at that point in my life. And so uh, we started talking uh, and he used every evangelistic tool and uh, method and conversation style that he had at his disposal. And it was like running into a brick wall with me. Uh, and in our last meeting before he graduated, he, he said, you know, I just think you really need to read the Gospel of John over, over the summer break. And that was the last time I talked to Luke. Mm. I can't remember his last name. Haven't heard from him since. Uh, he does not know who I am or you know, where I am or what I'm doing today. And I love sharing this story because Luke, uh, I hope Luke is out there listening or at some point uh, and we can reconnect. This was at mm-hmm. Bowling State University in Northern Ohio. And so that summer I read the Gospel of John and got to John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And in that moment, I realized this was either the most profound or the most insane thing that somebody had ever said. And it changed my life. Mm. I wrestled with that for several days and surrendered my life to Christ and began following him. Uh, Early on in my walk, I realized that God was preparing me for something, but I didn't know what. Mm. I spent seven years praying for God to show me uh, what he was preparing me for. I spent five of that Uh, of those years in the military, in the U.S. Navy, Uh, spent a couple other years after that finishing up college in Virginia. And uh, it was through my local church uh, that he revealed to me that uh, he was calling me to international missions. Hmm. And so from from then, um, I went to seminary at Southeastern where I met George Robinson. Uh, We became good friends at while I was uh, a missions student there for my, while my wife and I were preparing to go serve in South Asia. We served in South Asia for three years. The Lord called us back to the U.S. After that, I served in local church ministry for seven years. 
Uh, and so, but still approaching local church ministry as a missionary. Most, most of our work was in revitalization work. And so helping to cast a missional vision uh, to, uh, to smaller churches, to normative sized churches, however you want to describe it. Um, and one went really well. One went really well for about five years and one did not go so mm-hmm. well. And so uh, during that time, while I was finishing up my PhD, the Lord called us back overseas, he opened up an opportunity for me to teach missions at the Nigerian Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, where my wife and I currently live and serve today. So I'm training uh, Nigerian uh, mission students to go and make disciples of all nations. And so it's from Nigeria Mm. to the world. So it's kind of where we are today. Oh, man, thank you. That's a great, great introduction. And I can't promise you that I have enough listeners to find Luke, but what a great um, reminder of just <laughs> the call we all have to just be faithful with who's in front of us and we don't know uh, what God will do with it. So that's encouraging. Absolutely. Yeah. So just tell us then, and maybe this relates to some of that story, um, with whether Dr. Robinson or your time here at this um, seminary in Nigeria, but tell us a little bit about the backstory of this book. I'm always interested to know what, what kind of kicked kick the can first down the road that you even wanted to pursue this topic and yeah george robinson is to blame for yeah. this so <laughs> he we were actually uh shortly before we moved overseas to south asia we were uh, enjoying a cup of coffee on his porch one morning and just having some casual conversation and he asked me well what do we mean when we say the nations and it was this, I thought, well, of course, you know, it's, it's ethno-linguistic people groups. We have these definitions. We have these massive global strategies uh, that are built on these definitions. And I started looking at the literature uh, over the next several years. And I realized that a lot of people were, were just not defining it. We're assuming a definition. And I really started uh, getting, I, I started getting interested in the fact that we weren't really carefully defining this term and where it was defined. Uh, for example, in the Lausanne definition, the 1982 uh, definition of, of people groups, uh, there's nothing about the Bible in that definition. And so our definitions, even where they existed, weren't relying on a biblical theological definition. They were relying on sociology and anthropology and, and the social sciences, which again, those things are useful, but if but we have a biblical task and I'm convinced that if we have where we have a biblical task, we need to at least first establish the categories and the definitions from biblical theology. And from there, we can bring in sociology and anthropology and, the, and these tools to help us uh, understand how to go about that work better. And so that's where this came from. Uh, I, I explored one aspect of this in the book. I, I chose geography as an aspect because i think it's one of the most neglected it's and it's one of the most assumed that that we understand and and i realized that very quickly we don't understand it uh we we understand our own geography very well we understand where i'm from Uh, we understand you know you understand where you're from your listeners understand where they are from but we don't necessarily understand how different people groups around the world understand where they are from Mm -hmm. we don't understand Uh, how they understand where their borders are, where their boundaries are, what's important to them geographically, and the things that we think might be important to them are not, or the things that we think are not important to them are. 
And so the, the role of a missionary and, and researchers and missiologists, we need to be better learners regarding geography, much in the way that we go in learning culture and, and language. Uh, geography needs to be a part of that as part of their their emic system, this internal or internally consistent system that all of us have. And so geography is a part of that that we need to understand better. Uh, that's why, actually, as I read it, the first thing that hit me is this just a great reminder of if we're going to pursue the, the great commissions and the nations and the gospel reaching the ends of the earth, why are we defining those terms without the Bible? So I really appreciated that call. Um, and you just dove into something I didn't send as a question, so feel free to take a minute to think about it. But could you give a brief explanation of kind of the emic and etic um, concept? Uh, that was actually completely new to me, but I think it has a lot of bearing on all all uh, missions work, missiology, not just for geography. But if you just want to kind of give a brief overview of what those are. Sure. Emic and etic are, they're kind of these technical terms, but they're pretty prominent in anthropology. You'll find them in missions literature occasionally. And generally speaking, emic simply means an insider understanding and etic refers to an outsider understanding. And there was a footnote in the book that really, I felt like helped uh, land this geography concept that you really focused on getting to a biblical definition and then geography being neglected. You were talking about, I think, in South Asia when you were there, just some work among maybe the Sherpa people. I'd love for you to kind of tell that story, if there is any more of the story, about how that how you saw geography basically getting missed when it came to um, the, the missions work there. Yeah, so we worked mostly with the Sherpa peoples in the Everest region when we during our first couple of years in South Asia. We lived in Nepal, and... Uh, we realized, actually, on our, one of our first trips there with, with our team, we were uh, trying to use these uh, audio players with Bible stories in their language uh, that were recorded by Sherpas from another area. We, we had There was this barrier to the gospel that was it was not spreading beyond a certain point geographically, and we were trying to figure out why. And it was actually on this trip trying to share these Bible stories that we realized that uh, the people of the upper Sherpa saw themselves as distinct from the lower. And there was a geographical division. There was a socioeconomic division. Uh, there was um, probably some minor linguistic distinctions, but ethnically and linguistically, uh, they were the same. And so I realized that our ethno-linguistic categories were not really sufficiently describing the reality that we were seeing on the ground. And, you know, the, the question is, do they need different strategies? Well, we realized that, yes, they do. Uh, the lower Sherpa were unwilling to go to the upper Sherpa, um, probably for some uh, some of the same reasons that the upper Sherpa were unwilling to hear from the lower Sherpa. And so there, there was a disagreement uh, with some folks about whether or not we should consider these two groups as distinct from one another for strategy purposes. Uh, largely, it was the distinction was rejected because uh, ethnically and linguistically they were the same. Uh, but there were other differences, other factors that weren't being taken into consideration uh, that probably should have warranted them being considered a different people group for the purpose of strategy. 
you can't really know that distinction until you're out there among them, right? There's no way looking from afar that you'd be able to tell any of that. No, it's kind of like learning language. And I use the illustration, I use the comparison with language learning uh, in the book because you can, you can study a language from outside uh, and, you can, and you can study geography from outside. And you can have these broad categories kind of like you can have a, a, a phonetic alphabet that, mm-hmm. that accounts for all of the different possible sounds. But just because you have a phonetic alphabet and know all the sounds in the language doesn't mean, how they, doesn't mean you know how they go together, doesn't mean you understand syntax, doesn't mean you understand grammar. And so geography, we can have the same way. We can kind of build these general categories. I, I, I use boundaries and centers uh, kind of as broad categories that we can start with. But the goal in missions, whether it's in language, whether it's in geography, whether it's in church planting, is to move from the etic to the emic. We have, and we have to move from thinking like an outsider to moving as close to an insider as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. We're never going to get there completely. But our, our goal is to get as close as we can to an insider understanding of the culture, of the language, and that includes geography. So as we approach that, that understanding, you know, the, the key is to not confuse the two and, and to not impose our outsider categories and assume that it's an insider perspective. So not, not, to, not confuse the etic with the emic. Mm. And, and vice versa, not confuse the emic with the etic. And so some of our people group lists, and th- this is where I'm careful, I think some of our people group lists are probably incomplete, but that doesn't make them un- that doesn't make them not useful for us. Mm-hmm. They're still useful, but they are by definition etic comparisons because they're based on external or outsider criteria that, that are established. Uh, the challenge, be, you know, is on the field is understanding how accurately those dis- distinctions reflect reality, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't, and sometimes we have to make strategy decisions on the field that might not line up perfectly with our people group lists. Mm. Is basically like the only way to discover some of this to actually like go and live and be among uh, that people group, or what can you discover from the the airplane view, or even just kind of like the drop dropping in and out or research i think you can understand uh some by external research i think that some of our current technology is a massive win for us uh i use satellite images a lot you can tell a lot by a satellite image obviously not everything uh but you can tell where especially in planned cities Uh, or even unplanned cities, Uh, you can tell where the centers are, where the important places are sometimes, Mm. kind of where streets converge. Uh, If you look at an overview map of Washington, D.C., you might not know where any of the landmarks are, but you can tell where all of the important places are because Mm -hmm. all the streets run straight towards the White House and towards the Washington Monument, towards the Capitol Building. And so you, you might not know anything about Washington, D.C., but just by looking at a satellite image, you can say, OK, those are important places. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they're important yet, but they but they appear to be important. And so that why question is is the one that keeps driving us. So why is this important? What makes this significant to the culture? 
Uh, it, is there a religious aspect to it? And are there are there layers to it? You know, in, in Kathmandu, Nepal, there's this city center called Tamil, and it is a, a multi-layered, multi-faceted uh, part of the city that is a, it's a tourist center. You know, it, there's this, all of these tourist uh, restaurants and stores and shops there. Uh, there's a, it's a trekking hub. And so a lot of the trekking shops are there. A lot of the trekking companies are there. Uh, there's also, um, it's, it's Kathmandu. So there's Hindu shrines everywhere uh, in the city. Uh, but as we were doing research in, in Kathmandu, we realized that the majority religion in Tamil is Islam. Hmm. And it was shocking to us. We were surprised. There's actually two mosques on either side of the of the city center that mm-hmm. are regularly attended. And, and so we realized that, okay, there's multiple layers here in the mm-hmm. city center. It's important to different people groups for different reasons at different times. Mm-hmm. And so those sometimes those centers are uh, have different meaning and significance for different people groups. And, and it's it's all about going in and learning and just not assuming that we know mm. what's going on. Amen. Let's say a family from every people group in the world uh, moved to my city. Um, and after years of labor, like they all respond to the gospel and become believers and are gathered in churches. Like, does that mean we've accomplished the great commission? And, and if not, what are we missing there? All right. So there's a couple layers to this question that I, I want to address. And so first, uh, the question assumes that our people group lists are complete. Mm. Uh, and I'm not sure that we can draw a one-to-one comparison between our people group lists and what you know Jesus is saying in Matthew 28, 19, you know, to make disciples of all nations and you know, Matthew 24, 14. Uh, and so I I think they're helpful. I think they're helpful in developing strategy. But I don't want to overstate what they are. I think it's a fallacy to draw a one-to-one comparison between our current people group lists mm-hmm. uh, and a, a biblical understanding to complete the Great Commission. I think mm-hmm. I think Jesus calls us to faithfulness to the Great Commission, to fulfill the Great Commission, um, rather than any notion of completing it. Uh, I, it'll be done when it's done. Mm-hmm. Our, our role until that time is to continue the work, and we'll know when it's done. Uh, but until then we keep working towards uh, making disciples of all nations. Now, here's the other aspect of this. How long does that process take in your question, right? You have people, you know, some people, a family from every people group in the world moves to your city in the Midwest. And over time they are discipled and they accept Christ. And, you know, how much time does that take? Is that happened in the first generation? Uh, does it happen in the second generation? Does it happen in the third generation? And over time, those gen- do those generations, are they still the same people group? Mm. Or does something change? And this is where we get into issues of diaspora questions, and it gets really complicated really fast. I think it's a mistake for us to think that we can apply the same mission strategy to 
let's just say Yoruba people or Hausa people in West Africa to apply the same kind of strategies to the how to the Hausa in West Africa as we would to second or third generation Hausa in the diaspora. Uh, I think that's failing to take into account significant cultural changes that happen as a result of geographical uh, factors, but also you know, that take place as a result over time with generations who are living in a different cultural context. So, I mean, a Tamil uh, Hindu living in Southern India is going to have a different worldview than a second or third generation person from a Tamil Hindu background living in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And and we should and really we should understand this because a lot of us in the United States come from somewhere else. We're not native to the United States. You know, we our families came from somewhere. Right? I can say that I'm you know my heritage is from Germany and Switzerland, but am I German and Swiss at this point? No, I'm only a few generations removed from that. Uh, four generations removed from that, but I am not. Uh, German or Swiss. I don't speak the language. I don't. I don't share a worldview. I've never even been to Germany and Switzerland. Mm. So those ge- those geographies don't really hold any significance for me. And so, even thinking about geography in the United States, we need to think about uh, how we reach diaspora peoples, and we can't just import a strategy from overseas and expect it to have the same effect or work the same way, uh, especially among second, third, and beyond generation diaspora populations. Mm. The reality is like people's, the, the geography aspect of people's understanding of themselves is kind of like a moving target is what I'm hearing. Um, like you just said about a German moving from uh, moving to America and then six generations later where they're not German. So how do, how do we roll that forward? And even like mission strategy, when we think about that, that, that is going to shift over, over the centuries until, until Christ returns. Part of it is being aware of how geography plays a role in our church planting in our disciple making. Uh, I, I think as even something like, taking into account geography when we're doing our generational church maps. Mm. I, I would love to take a generational church map and start laying them on a geographical map and start looking at things like, okay, where are the holes? Mm. You know, where, where are the holes in the, in the city? Where are the holes in the state? Where are the holes in the country? Uh, and then ask why, why are there holes there? Maybe that's a different people group. And we didn't know about it. Uh, maybe there are uh, things going on that we don't know about. Maybe, maybe there's just not as many people there and nobody thought about going to plant a church there. Mm-hmm. On the flip side of that, we start looking at, at a generational church map on a physical map. And we start seeing churches that are close to one another, geographically close to one another, but they're not partnering together. They're not, they're not working together on some things. We start asking why. Again, that why question is so important. Why are they not working together? Maybe they're a different people group. Maybe they aren't familiar with one another. Maybe they speak a different language. Maybe there are uh, ethnic you know, differences. Maybe you know, historical hostilities. Maybe there are uh, 
uh, a variety of other factors, or may, maybe it's just simply that's a different city. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I was in, in Southern Indiana, it's so funny. Uh, I was an associate pastor at a church in North Vernon, Indiana. Now, just to the South of us, there was Vernon, Indiana. Uh, and the North Vernon was slightly larger. They were both very rural communities. Uh, but the people of Vernon were very quick to point out that they were Vernon and not North Vernon. Mm-hmm. And so even there, there was a, 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 a geographical distinction between the two. Now the churches, the Baptist churches in those communities, we partnered together. We're good friends. We worked together, engaged in mission work together. But in places where those geographical boundaries might be a little bit harder and more even, mm-hmm. even more closely tied to identity, uh, there may be barriers to the churches working together. Mm-hmm. And so where we would see a church that close together, a few miles away, we would be, we would need to ask, well, why, why is this happening? Uh, and is, are there some things that we can do to encourage the churches to work together and partner together? Or do we need to think about how do we uh, have different streams going? Mm-hmm. And both of those are valid, the valid strategies at different times and in different places, depending on the needs. Title of the book is Peoples and Places and just uh, how geography impacts mission strategies, the subtitle. I think that um, what you said there just really sums that up nicely. So is there any particular way, um, the best way for people to find the book or connect with you? Uh, Amazon has it. Uh, they, Kindle has some great uh, deals on an ebook version of it uh, right now. If, if they want to purchase bulk copies, they can purchase them through Whip and Stock through the publisher. If they want to connect with me, uh, you can connect with me on Twitter at uh, Matthew Hurt uh, is the best way to connect with me there. If you have any comments or questions, you can head to ontheroad.link. That's ontheroad.link. You can check out the show notes for links to the book, People and Places, as well as other things that Matthew and I talked about. I actually had one more question for Matthew, so if you'd like to hear it and his answer, you can keep listening after I close the podcast, which is right now. This is Feeney. Thanks for listening. The On the Road podcast is to encourage you to... The On the Road podcast is to encourage you and your church to share the gospel, make disciples, and reproduce leaders and churches until there is no place left and no people left where the name of Jesus hasn't been heard. What I was wanted to ask about is the idea, the idea that we do know of like people groups that have gone extinct, um, even in modern day, that may or may not have heard the gospel yet. But then you're also, as you were talking, it made me think like, and are we not to a certain extent, like, are there new people groups that are being born? Like if you think about like third generation Hmong people in Minneapolis, like where do they consider their, you know what I mean? Like, would they really consider themselves part of like, I'm sure they're considered like kindred to people that are back in um, Vietnam, but, um, or Laos, wherever that is. But just curious if you've thought any about that, or if I'm totally off my rocker there on this kind of the the potentially like birthing of new people groups over the, over the course of history. Yeah, I, I think you're, I mean, that's definitely an interesting question. It's one I've thought about some, not the extinct aspect of it so much, but I think that's a completely valid question. The start of 
understanding of the nations in the Bible starts in Genesis 10. In Genesis 10, we get three times this repetition of this formula that we get peoples uh, and their their families, their nations, their language, and their land. Uh, And so this is repeated three times throughout Genesis 10. And then it gets repeated again in Genesis. The the reference is made in Genesis 12 to Abram. He says, you know, God says, you know, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the purple, the person who's hearing this story uh, would go, okay, who, who are these families? And well, we just talked about this in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. Where did these families come from? Well, they're the families of this, you know, this table of nations, these descendants of Noah's sons. Now, some of these nations still exist and we can have pretty accurate identity uh, of who they are. For example, Mizraim is Egypt. It's translated as Egypt pretty consistently throughout uh, the Old Testament. Uh, mm. And, you know, Javan is, you know, closely identified with, with Greece. And But, I mean, who are these other nations? We don't really know. Mm. And, and I don't think the question of who are these 70 or 72 nations in Genesis 10 uh, who are they today it is really the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission. Uh, I don't think, I think this is where we get our starting point, but it's not kind of mm-hmm. the definitive list of, of the nations who we're trying to reach. And so clearly over time, uh, nations rise and nations fall. Uh, and Job, God says, you know, we know that God controls the rise and fall of nations. Uh, ancient empires you know, rose and ancient empires fell. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there are still Assyrians and Medes and Persians and Romans uh, in the world today, but they're, uh, you know, obviously their empires fell. But who are these other people groups? Who are these other nations listed in Genesis 10? And I, I don't, I don't think that really matters a whole lot apart from a, you know, maybe a, a better understanding of scripture. So I think that nations definitely rise, nations definitely fall, nations become extinct. We know languages become extinct. Uh, And so I don't think that, you know, getting a definitive list uh, of the nation so that we can complete the Great Commission so that Jesus can come back is the best way to to go about Mm -hmm. understanding and doing missions work. Again, I, I focus more on a fulfillment of the task, fulfillment of the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. It's an obedience, right? It's a task that we seek to fulfill and to complete according to the task we have been given, but not necessarily completing in an eternal sense. Again, when it's completed, we'll know. Mm-hmm. But until then... I don't think trying to figure out what it means to complete it uh, according to a people group list is the best way. Yeah. So then I would circle around just to land it as the idea of, as you said, people group lists can be helpful. Let's define people groups biblically. And then also, I know a lot of people know Jeff Sandel is like, where are the gaps? And I think a better understanding of the local geography, even how people are relating to each other, those are all help us to go. Is there a gap? Is there a great commission gap here? And it's it's obviously up to the Lord when the whole 
when the uh, task is fulfilled. But if we see a gap in front of us or we're made aware of a gap, then then there's a call to reach um, that people with the good news. Absolutely.